Well, good morning. Church, home, we are really glad to be here. It's been a wonderful month. We haven't seen rain yet. Many of you have been promising rain. We haven't seen it yet. <laughs> I would like to begin with a word uh, this morning uh, from Luke chapter 18, verse 35 to 43. If you want to turn there. Luke 18, 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. When he heard a crowd going by, he asked what was going on. They told him, Jesus, the Nazarene, is passing by. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front scolded him to get him to be quiet. But he shouted even more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stopped and ordered the beggar to be brought to him. When the man came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He replied, Lord, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he regained his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they too gave praise to God. This is the word of the Lord. On Sundays when I'm preaching, which I imagine will be most Sundays after I read the passage, I will say this is the word of the Lord. And my expectation is that you will respond as a congregation by saying, thanks be to God. And I feel a theological and emotional need for that exchange right up front. And I asked also for this pulpit to be brought back out from the closet because I don't speak on my own authority, do I? None of us do. We stand here behind the pulpit, behind the word of God. And behind this pulpit, or any pulpit, and behind the words of the Lord, we all have the authority to speak, barred authority. But we do share out of God's authority. And so when, when I say this is the word of the Lord, it, it feels to me emotionally and theologically like we are reminding ourselves that the authority with which we lead is God's. And we understand that, and so we remind ourselves of that as we engage God's word together. So I will say again, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll respond by saying, thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. The title of today's talk is Presence. And presence is a really big deal to me. It wasn't always, I would say, the season of life that taught me the most about this idea of presence is becoming a dad and having kids. Now, being bodily present, I've always known how to do that. I just have to show up. And there I am, present. But when you're a dad, when you're a mom, when you have kids who are wanting, demanding, insisting on your attention and they're physically grabbing your face and turning it towards them you begin to understand 
or at least I did, what presence really is. Presence isn't just being bodily present. But what I, what I learned, and I'm still learning each and every day, is that to be present is to die to my own hopes, wants, needs, and dreams at that moment and live, respond, be attentive to the hopes, needs, wants, and dreams of these little creatures that are before me. And it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. You know, when I, when I sort of think about this idea of presence and engaging in somebody else's needs, wants, hopes, and dreams, I realize it's the biblical concept of being a servant. Philippians 2 says that Jesus was a servant, and he denied himself. And although he was God, he did not try to obtain this, but took on the form of a servant and died to himself, his own hopes, wants, needs, and dreams, even to the point of shedding blood, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And so the idea of being present to somebody else and their hopes, wants, needs, and dreams really taken to its extreme is we're talking about death. We are to die to ourselves and live to other people. And so... For me to be present to my kids, it was an exercise and experience and season and lessons of dying to myself. How many of you would go to a restaurant and have servants serving you, waiters and waitresses, and they're not paying attention to you at all? They're living to their hopes, wants, needs, and dreams. They don't care about your empty water glass because they're thirsty. They're not worried about your hunger because they're hungry. They're out back eating, having a meal. How would you rate that restaurant? To be a servant means to die. Isn't that what, isn't that what being present is? Being a servant? So it is sort of a, a big deal to me. And we learned that Jesus is the ultimate servant. That he actually and literally died. For us, he who knew no sin became sin for us, for you, for me. And this is the hope of the Christian gospel, that we have a Savior who was attentive and alive, not just to himself, but to us, even at the expense of himself. He's present with us. And so because of that ultimate act of engagement and presence to us, we can now trust him to be present with us now. That he said, it is better that I go away. Because right now I'm with you. But when I go away, I will send a helper and I will be in you. He is present in our midst. And we know this. We can believe this. We can trust this. Because he died for us. But how do you experience the presence of God in your life? How is he present? If he is actually alive and well, and he loves you and he cares, and he proved it to you on the cross, how do you experience him now? Where is he now? One of the fascinating things for me about our Christian faith 
the most fascinating thing is the person of Jesus, his personality, his quirks, the way he responded and reacted to people, how he carried about his day. It's interesting to me because it's different than how I would do it. He doesn't respond in the same way I tend to respond. You know, and we read a story like that. Here we have a guy who's having to scream at the top of his lungs just to get Jesus' attention, or so it seems. And we have a crowd who has no understanding of the movement of the Holy Spirit, who has no idea what God has been working on and what God is up to at this moment. They're trying to shut this guy down. And he's fighting through the crowd. He's fighting through his own doubts and insecurities just so he can get Jesus, his supposed Savior, to turn his head. I say this is what it usually feels like for me and Jesus. If he cares and he loves, where is he? What do I have to do? What kind of tantrums do I have to throw to get this guy's attention? Why doesn't he answer your prayers? Why doesn't he seem like he cares? What kind of rebellious acts and passive-aggressive motions? Where's your God? This is how often I experience my God. Sort of not really present, not really engaged. And quite possibly the evidence is mounting at times that he might even be unloving. What do you think? If you're honest, if you're courageous enough to speak your true feelings, if you were to read the moment that your life is caught in right now, where is the Lord God of Elijah? I think Jesus always knew exactly who he was and who he was not. He knew what his mission was and what his mission was not. He had a strong and solid sense of identity. And I think he was always loving. He was never unloving. He was never using the word love or the category love. He was never flying under the banner of love but acting in some contrary way. At any given moment, he always acted out of love. His words were always loving. He was always lovingly engaged. In other words, he always moved, I think, within a larger framework of love and mission and identity. Love, mission, and identity. He was never just anxiously reactive like I usually am. He was never trying to placate people. He was never playing politics. He wasn't managing people. He wasn't trying to meet up to expectations. He wasn't trying hard to be liked. He wasn't worried about his pol- political approval rating. He wasn't in- engaged in debate for appearance sake. He was actually loving and engaged. He was always on mission with purpose. In fact, the scriptures say that his face was set like flint towards Jerusalem. Hard, determined, unwavering, unchanging. This is what 
I and one of my favorite authors, Edwin Freeman, calls a non-anxious presence. He was present, but unlike us, he remained non-anxious. He wasn't anxiously reactive. He wasn't capitulating to yours or my fears and anxieties or agendas or will. Always perfectly operating out of a perfect framework of love, mission, and identity. A non-anxious presence. Me, on the other hand, I can be non-anxious, but usually that means I'm absent. Or sometimes even though I'm absent, I'm still anxious. But to be present and non-anxious, that's quite a tall order for me. And so when I compare my ways to the ways of Jesus, of course it doesn't look the same. Of course it looks like this blind beggar is shouting at the top of his lungs to get God's attention. Because he's human. He's like me. What about this crowd? They don't know what's up or down. They're reactive. They don't know God's will. They don't know God's work. You know, in fact, there's an interesting little phrase here in verse 40 where it says, so Jesus stopped. If you want to do this research, go to a website called Bible.org. Just simple, Bible.org, and do a Greek parsing of that word stopped. And it will tell you that it's not that simple. It's not just that Jesus stopped, but that he was stopped. It doesn't clarify whether it was the crowd or if it was the Holy Spirit. But there were some other forces at play here. There was some sort of orchestrator beyond the persons named in this story that's doing some of the stopping. Now, here's this blind beggar. I think if I use my imagination a little bit, all his life, and I imagine him to be maybe 35 years old. All his life, he's been blind. They didn't have social programs back then. He was relegated to begging. That's all he could do. That was the definition of productivity for him. What do you do for a living? I beg. And I think he always begged for three things, basically. Food, clothing, and money. How many times do you think this man has ever screamed at the top of his lungs to get some rabbi to turn his way, to ask him for God to heal his eyes. How many times in the history of this man's 35-year-old life has that happened? Maybe a dozen times? Maybe six? Maybe three? I think this is the very first time in his life ever that somebody of significance was stopped by by some outside force, ordered him to be brought before him, actually saw him, was attentive to him, looked at him. Because this guy, he's, he's invisible as far as society is concerned. But it's the first time somebody of significance saw him and asked him, what do you want me? And the you that's invisible, the you that's powerless, that's the you that's relegated to begging, want me, all-powerful, all-knowing. 
What do you want me to do for you? How significant and unique is that moment? See, I think the Spirit of God has been at work. And Jesus, who only did what he saw his Father doing already, for whom it was, the, it was his food to do his Father's will, he has been waiting and working for this moment. When, when the Holy Spirit said, Jesus, stop. Jesus was stopped. Beggar came before him. He sees this invisible man and says, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus knows what God is doing. Jesus is participating in the work of God. Jesus is engaging. He's dying to his own agendas, his own will, and saying yes to the agendas and the will of God. At this moment. And of course, huge fruit, as John was talking about, is born. Look at verse 43. This is the best, most ideal, most ultimate outcome of any event that the church could ever hold. If every conversation in your life ended with this, you are a superstar. And immediately he regained his sight and followed Jesus, conversion, repentance, Praising God, worship, and all the people around it also give praise to God. How ideal and fantastic is this result? This is spiritual fruit, all because God is already at work and because Jesus refuses to be an anxious presence, refuses to be a non-anxious absence, but is a non-anxious presence committed to the work and will of God, committed to the leading of the Holy Spirit on his life. How beautiful is this? How perfect is this? I can tell you, I have begged and pleaded with God on many occasions because I knew exactly how he ought to respond to circumstances and desires in my life. And none of the time has God ever capitulated Each and every time he's proven to me, he does not care if I like him or not. He is not insecure in my life. He's not playing politics in my life. He's not trying to please me. He doesn't care if I'm mad at him. He's not moved if I misunderstand him. He's consistent. He's persistent. And at each and every turn... He's committed to working in my life. Now, let me ask you a hypothetical question. Okay? These two screens behind me and in front of you, how many of, what percentage of these screens, if these screens represented the sum total of all the knowledge in the whole universe, there's nothing else left to know. What percentage of this screen do you know? Maybe 50%. Maybe 50% of that. Now, just to help you answer this question here, I want you to know that last week, eight new species of animals were discovered in Peru that we had not known about prior to that. Another hint, 
a new black hole was discovered in our galaxy. The Milky Way. Okay, another hint. Scientists have just learned that our appendix actually has a purpose. (laughs) And it's used to reboot the gut. Do you know that Pluto is not a planet anymore? (laughs) I'm telling you, we know very little. Oh, so very little. And if God, who knows everything, were to capitulate to every whim and prayer and demand and perspective and angle that I have, that I bring to him, And he was worried about what Peter thought about that. Would he be a God worthy of my worship? My kids asked me one day how money works. I could not explain to save my life. Two weeks ago, they asked me what Wi-Fi is and why their iPad wasn't working. I could not explain it to save my life. How is God supposed to relate to me knowing all that he does except to say, as our pastor John Peterson used to say, dear ones, trust in me. Trust me on this. He will not give in. He will not capitulate. In a sea of anxious men and women, Throughout our history of kings and rulers, there stands one lone figure, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, lover of our souls, savior of all humankind. We worship him, not because he's a glory hog, not because he's insecure and we have to stroke his ego on a regular basis but because he truly is the only one who is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of my trust. Now, if this is our God, some application points. Number one, if you study the Gospels and you read about all of Jesus' encounters with people, sort of stories along the way. Remember, his face was set like flint towards his death in Jerusalem. Jesus' life is mostly interruptions. Even Jesus' life is mostly interruptions. Now, there are a fair number of gray hairs in this room. But honestly, look around. It's a really good mix here. But those of you who have gray hairs, I assume you've earned it. Have you been able to predict your life? All the wisdom that you've gained through the years, does it tell you that life is predictable? That we are smart and competent enough to predict what's around the corner? And so it was for Jesus. Interruptions. What is the future of Mercer Island going to look like? Interruptions. Interruptions. It's going to be awfully inconvenient. We are not going to be able to plan out the way things ought to be as well and as perfectly 
and as neatly as we'd like. We're going to try. Because there are days we just, we just want to be God. But he's going to win. And our life is going to be interruptions. Application point number two. What we see according to this passage, according to Jesus' life, and Philippians 2, as it spells it out there, is that trying to be great doesn't lead to greatness. Greatness is a goal that's worthy, that's commendable to God, but it happens incidentally as we become servants. That's what Philippians says, that because Jesus took on the role of a servant, rather than trying to grasp at being God, and he subjected himself to death, even death on a cross, so God highly exalted him to greatness. It's penicillin. It's an accident. It's incidental. As we serve, as we are engaged in saying yes to God's will, as we say yes to interruptions, doors open, doors close, but open doors lead to other open doors. And lo and behold, we stumble upon greatness. We are not going to pursue greatness as a church. We are going to pursue fruitfulness and faithfulness. And I think it's going to be a pretty great journey. But the focus is being present, opening our eyes to the community, to each other, saying yes. And point number three, most of the ways that we relate to our circumstances and each other is this pendulum swing of being managerial or messianic. Most of the ways that we relate to church ministries and the roles that we, are, we have been given or earned or have evolved into over time is being managerial or messianic. We take it on. Their problems become our problems. We don't care about God's will anymore because, gosh darn it, we're responsible We have to get this done. We have to make sure it goes on. Because after all, the show must go on. And then that gets tiring and overwhelming. We're not wired to be messianic. Even Jesus isn't messianic. And so then we become managerial. And that doesn't feel right either. So we become messianic. So back and forth, back and forth we go. I want you to put up there now, this is a list, and not exhaustive list, representing over 80 ministries or positions or groups of this church alone. You would think these are like government office positions or something. That's a lot of things happening in our church. I spent about an hour and a half scouring through this list, and I could not put the pieces together. I've spent a month and a half trying to understand the ministries of this church. Do you think in every single ministry God is at work and its will for Mercer Island Covenant Church? I think all of these things are great, in fact. It's fantastic. But what does saying yes and no to what God's doing 
through Mercer Island mean for us? What does it mean for us to not be messianic or managerial with this list of ministries and groups and positions at the church? These are some hard questions. Now I'm, I'm getting into your personal space, aren't I? How do you like them apples? <laughs> I have been focusing on what I've been calling 30 days of listening for myself. You have graciously allowed me to start September 1, but not preach until today. A full month of just listening and meeting with you all. I feel like I'm just beginning to get a sense of the spirit and heart of this church. Just beginning. I want to invite you all now to 30 days of listening. And I was waiting until this time to officially invite you because I wanted to preach this sermon on presence so that you have an idea of what I mean by listening. I mean dying to your own agendas. Dying to what you're used to. Dying to what's comfortable for you. Dying to what works for you. Dying to what maybe you like. So that you can live to the hopes, wants, needs, and dreams of God and his work in and through this church. I wanted you to release, be open, hold loosely, so that you have a great opportunity to say yes. And there's a great chance that those things you're already engaged in, those things you already care about, are what God is going to call you to. But let's give God that chance to speak afresh into our hearts and our vision again. Listen, spend 30 days listening. Be present. Be a non-anxious presence. Look around this church. I want you to look at the physical building. I want you to sniff. Literally sniff. Smell what the, what the narthex smells like because I smell things out there. How would a newcomer to this church respond to that smell? Is it a fragrant offering unto God or is it an obstruction? I don't know. But let's be present and alive and engaged to God in this church again together. There's lots of programs and meetings and groups and positions. There's lots of thoughts that I have about what a building makeover, what gathering strategies, what integration, what missional engagement, what alignment, what branding, what self-care, family care, ministry, ministry structure and governance, leadership, the Sunday experience, community needs assessments, world mission, and on top of all that, 20 hours of sermon prep a week look like. For me, we need to be committed to God's will for us. He's already doing something. We don't have time or energy for all the things we also want to add on top of that. So I invite you to 30 days of listening beginning today. We'll end on November 4th. And we are going to uh, start a series on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's going to be fun. That'll take us to December 2nd, which is the beginning of Advent. And then we'll celebrate the Christmas season together. And then we'll start another series on what it means to embody 
the gospel, how to be a church, how to function as a church, how to minister as a church, how to relate to one another as a church, and what being church means. And then that will take us all the way to the beginning of Lent, and then we'll enter the Easter season together, and then before you know it, it'll be summer again. It's going to be a fun ride. It's going to be great as we learn to serve God and one another together. Are you with me? Amen. Would you bow your heads? Father, all of us are here because you are already here. We're not trying to summon your presence. We're not trying to coax you into showing up and starting something. But we are here because you have called us and because that calling has already been making us and stirring us. And so we have gathered here today. Open our eyes to what you see, to what you want to do. Gather us as your people. Grow us as a missional community. God, we offer ourselves to you. We die to our hopes, wants, needs, and dreams. We repent and we receive your hopes, needs, wants, and dreams for us today. Help us to listen this next 30 days and to see and to hear and to feel and to think. Lord, we give ourselves over to you. We receive from you. Open the eyes of our heart, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.